my beautiful people. I always do these intros retrospectively after the interview was done because that way I know what we actually talked about versus what we plan to talk about. And this episode is totally dynamite. And it comes as no surprise because our guest on today's podcast is a champion in business, in his personal life, and the way that he shows up as a man. He is a five-time attendee at the Olympics as the coach for women's beach volleyball, multiple times with the Australian team, multiple times with the Canadian team. He has won a bronze medal with the Australian women, and he has won a freaking gold medal at the Olympics. And so he knows what it's required to win at the highest level of sport to cultivate the mindset necessary to thrive in the highest of pressure situations and how to apply that to your daily life. In this episode, we dive really deep into his experience with what we're calling empowered masculinity, the difference between masculine energy and feminine energy, and as a man, being able to embrace both of them, and as a woman, being able to embrace both of them, and he, we touched on the work that he's doing with what's called Flashpoint Global, where he's bringing a character-based education to youth and school programming all over the country. And so I'm very inspired by the work that you're up to. I genuinely appreciate the investment that you're making into our listeners' lives, and I couldn't be more proud to have you as a role model and a friend Please welcome and enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Steve Anderson. This is Gripped, my good friend, Anderson. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tom, thank you for having me, brother. Appreciate it. Super stoked that you're with me. We kind of met by chance because I'm friends with Dean Nguyen. Yes. And you two were on the same men's team together. And so when I finished my weekend and I finished uh, my point program, uh, I kind of fell into, you know, defaulting to wanting to be on his team. So that's how we met. Okay. You know, I, I didn't even know this. So there you go. Now I know. <laughs> it was by chance. How long have you been with the foundations? So... I, you know, I've been with the foundation for, wow, is it four, four or five years now? Um, the foundation was my original team. And then I got changed to another team. And then we ended up um, rejoining with the foundation. So that's, I thought that was pretty funny. I was one of the only people to leave the, the foundation um, after I had, 2013, I came right into the foundation. Wow. And um, I was there for a few years. And then we, you know, as we do, we mix up the men so that they're in different places. And I ended up on another team. And then a year later, the uh, foundation was was shifting and we, uh, we joined teams. So back on the foundation. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm very appreciative 
of how things turned out because you are such a, you know, a quiet but powerful presence on our team. And I think that, you know, decades of leadership development and coaching athletes at the highest level has really contributed to how you show up and help contribute to the men on our team. And so for everybody that's listening to get an idea of who you are and some context on your background, um, you know, just really briefly, you know, multiple uh, stints as a coach for the women's volleyball teams, uh, both in Australia and Canada that went to the Olympics. So for those that, that didn't know that, uh, you've won with those teams a bronze medal and a fucking gold medal. Yeah, with um, the Australian team, yes. With the Australian team. And so can you walk right. us through just like what that background of, you know, being a coach in the Olympics was like? I remember we had a conversation with, you mentioned walking into the CEO's office for the, uh, the Australia, Australia's team um, and what that conversation sounded like when you first got there. So can you kind of give mm-hmm. us some context and background in that? Yeah, we were actually training. And so if you know my background, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a, I'm a five foot 10 black kid from Louisville, Kentucky. And I coach beach volleyball. So that in itself is, <laughs> you know, was a journey. Um, but I played professionally in California myself on the AVP. I was a part-time professional. And when I, I started coaching so that I could train full-time and play full-time and ended up being a, a full-time professional coach. So I ended up in Australia coaching the women's team there, uh, Natalie Cook and Carrie Podharst, because the Olympics, for the first time, beach volleyball was going to be the Olympics in 1996. So went to Australia and my first meeting with the, with, you know, the guy from the Federation president was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited because it's first Olympics. We're training to play for a medal. And, you know, realistically, the Brazilians and the Americans were the only real medal prospects. They're the only ones that people would recognize. And here we were proclaiming that we we're going to win a medal. And so he met me, and uh, I think he was just trying to humble me <laughs> and put me in my place a little bit and just said, you know, I don't really believe that, you know, our team has a chance to win a medal. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what am I doing here? You know, why, <laughs> why would I be here if it wasn't to, you know, give our best to win a medal? And, but it put it in perspective to, you know, for me, because where I come from in my own personal journey I haven't given myself the luxury of, um, you know, thinking small. I'd still be, you know, in Kentucky, hopefully alive, if not in jail. You know, this it's it was, uh, you know, there are people where I grew up who, you know, it's it's hard to aspire to move out of this situation, and so the, your mentality and how your your belief of what you can do in the world sets the context for your life. And so I was very fortunate to, um, to have people around me who believed in me and modeled it for me so that I could set some strong context for myself, you know, to dare to dream. So that's, that's how I ended up in Australia. And it was my first meeting and really it put it in perspective, okay? Not everybody's gonna be supporting this journey, <laughs> not even from the inside. So we have to, we have to uh, support ourselves. Right off the bat, it seems to me like in a very similar way that you needed to intentionally control uh, your mindset and belief system around you know, the area you grew up in and what it was like growing up 
in a place that you said, you know, it's tough to aspire towards big dreams. When you showed up in us with the Australian team, you had to do the exact same thing for them that you had to do for yourself early on in your life. Yeah. And this is, so this is the beautiful thing about the privilege I've had to, to, you know, five Olympic games now that I've had the privilege to, to be, you know, part of. And the thing that I recognize from doing something like the Olympics and doing it that many times and, you know, I've had different businesses. I've had a record label, an entertainment company, a restaurant, um, you know, performance coaching business. So I've had all these opportunities to meet lots of different people, work with lots of different people, and it's the same thing. You know, the Olympics looks like this amazing, special, you know, special event because it's all the best in the world come together to do this thing. But in your daily life, you're tackling tackling the same thing. Like you're, it's your mindset. If your mindset's messed up, then try having strong relationships and, um, you know, try doing something that you love and monetize it, you know, living your dreams. It's, we get highlighted because we're on television and the Olympics are spotlighted and, you know, professional athletes, they get, you know, um, given money and status and all that sort of stuff. But try being a mom or a dad or, you know, starting a company or just working a job and getting educated, educating your kids. You know, it's, it's a challenge. And um, yeah, so by recognizing that it's all the same thing, I'm like, okay, this is about being a champion person, not a champion athlete. So champion people get champion results. That's, that's my philosophy. Champion people get champion results. And when you showed up, it was already, it seemed like an uphill battle, right? And that was in 1996. Uh, 96, I started working with the team in 95 and mm-hmm. um, we had about eight, eight, eight months, 10 months and we're at the Olympics. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was an incredible journey, but we got a bronze medal and in the semifinals, we, we choked, we didn't show up. We just weren't prepared for it because our, our identity, our image of self did not match the goal. We could not imagine ourselves because it was impossible for anyone except the Americans or the Brazilians to win a medal. There were three American teams and two Brazilian teams, and there were three medals. And, um, you know, so when we got to that position where, you know, you win the semifinals, you're in the gold medal match, it's gold or silver. You're guaranteed a medal. And our image of self did not match Olympic gold medalists. It just didn't match. So after we lost the semifinals, we spent the entire day, tears, screaming, whatever, to regroup and to, and it was mostly about shifting our belief about, you know, what was possible for us? What did we deserve? Are we worthy of this? Have we done the work? You know, can we get past our own um, insecurity to give ourselves a chance and just use our training? And that's what we did in the bronze medal match and uh, we won a bronze medal. But we had that going into the next Olympics where we won a gold medal. We had this experience of knowing that this was all about our our state of mind and our belief systems. We had done the training, but we got in our own way. So going into the Sydney Olympics 2000, we didn't want to make the same mistakes. So we spent that next four years, um, you know, really working on our mindset and our belief systems. And uh, what we know is like setting strong context 
And so we had a super high context that was way bigger than us. It was how we were changing Australia as a country, sport in Australia, how we're creating possibility for young people. It moved out of, you know, doing this so we could be medalists. You know, we could have, we, we, the work that we had put in would pay off for us personally to society. To how is this going to change? What's the legacy behind this long after we, we're not here anymore? And that's what gave us the opportunity to go there and have courage and to perform when it seemed like it was bigger, the pressure was bigger than we were. Well, it wasn't about us anyway. So when the pressure showed up, it was about the mission and the commitment and the purpose, not about are we worthy, you know, do we deserve this? We know the cause was big enough. That sounds like a real uphill battle. Um, I took that note that said identity of self didn't match the goal. Yeah. Identity of self didn't match the goal. So yeah. for people that are listening and they're thinking, because I really loved how you portrayed and explained that of raising your context out of just what's in it for me to what's the bigger purpose how can we make a contribution with our example of who we're being and how we're going to put in this work? Yeah. How can somebody apply that to their life today? What's one strategy uh, before we move on, 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 on taking that identity of self to help it match the goal that, that you need to accomplish? Yeah. So I've got, I've got lots of strategies. I do a process called the champion's map. And one of the tools that I use inside this mapping process is called directive legacy. And Directive legacy is literally considering your legacy, the legacy you want, not the legacy you're going to inherit after you finish doing something, you look back and you go, oh, that's my legacy, <laughs> you know, like this, change that, you know. Directive legacy is consciously considering what legacy do I want for myself and for others? And then taking that legacy that you create and attaching it to the goals that you have. So if I have a goal and, you know, one of the, the problems that I have with goals is we set goals and then we do whatever it takes to achieve the goal, even if it means compromising our health, our relationships, our values, you know, integrity, whatever. And then we call that success. You know, it might give you money. It might give you status. It might give you all this stuff. And we, we have cases today where you see people who have money and status and you know, power, but can you say that these people are truly happy or can you say that they're actually, you know, contributing to, you know, advancing the world and world peace and all these sort of things? And it's not necessarily true. So for, with the legacy, you attach it to your goal. And so if it, if the opportunity that you're getting doesn't match the legacy that you create for that goal, then it's not your opportunity. And so this tool, this directive legacy tool actually helps you direct your decision-making. So when you get to the end of that journey, whatever that, that, that journey that you, you carve out is, you look back and you have the legacy that you intended to have because that's what's guided you along the journey. And so it's, you know, it just matches law of attraction and all the things that help you to manifest. It's not a magic thing, but the process itself and the tool itself, mentally and emotionally, it helps to keep you in alignment 
Um, and it helps to keep you working at a higher level than just trying to, you know, survive. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really about harmonizing success and, and thriving yeah. and in being, I really hear that being in alignment. One thing I want to just, I don't want to beat a dead horse on this point, but I do want to point out you, you know, you finished working with the Australian team and then you walked into working with the Canadian team and you, you right. told me a story about the press conference and kind of what their belief system and their mindset was around winning a medal. And the only reason I want to bring this one up as well is because we see athletes at the highest level of sport and we think they must be impenetrable they must be invincible mm. like there's no way that they have the same uh, mental battles and barriers that i'm facing on a daily basis except you you know you you finish working with the australians you walk in to work with the canadians and they they sounded to have had a very similar mindset it was it was really interesting for me because <laughs> it wasn't a walk into canada by the way it was a very stringent process, <laughs> you know, three interviews, panel of six people, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, a visit from Australia to Canada to meet everyone just to make sure it was good. Uh, and so I was on this, this is my final visit. Um, they said, okay, you're going to be the coach. They offered the job. Um, we set nice. up a conference. Yeah. After all that, um, and I had a vision, right? I had a real vision um that they really bought into and so my time here i was here for about three days and i visited you know the facilities we have this amazing facility in downsview park um, i met the people you know the athletes i'd known for a while i'm like we have all these pieces here this is this is why are we doing better <laughs> you know this all the pieces are here and you know canada had already had a, a bronze medal a, uh, John Child and Marquise in 96, the Canadian men won a bronze medal at the first Olympics. So there was a history of success there, but the Canadian program hadn't been successful in 10 years. And um, so I came here in 2013 and we had this press conference and I've been preparing for the press conference. It's my first address of, you know, all the stakeholders. So, you know, I've written the speech and I've been practicing it and just something just didn't seem, every time I met someone or went somewhere, the speech just didn't, didn't seem to do it. So literally, I'm about to walk into the, the conference room for the press conference, and I've got the speech, and I just basically tear the speech up. And I walk in, and the first thing I say to them is, you know, thank you for having me here. I see some familiar faces. And John Chow, the uh, bronze medalist, was actually in the room. And I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really confused. So, you know, I, th I want to thank everybody for coming here, but I want to speak just to the athletes right now, specifically to the athletes. And I asked them, when is the last time that you got off the plane uh, expecting to win an international event? And they laughed at me. Like they literally laughed, <laughs> you know, the room just started laughing. And uh, I was confused. I'm like, what are you laughing about? It's a legit question. And so uh, one, of the, one of the guys in the room had enough courage, he spoke up. And he said, well, you know, that's a bit American for us. And they knew I was American. He says, uh, you know, we're Canadian. You know, that's, that's not really us. We're nicer than that. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, that's, that's more American. We're just not like that. And I said, really? He said, well, okay, I just got here. I've dealt with Canadians before, but haven't lived here. 
And I don't know much about Canada. I'm learning. But I know that hockey, ice hockey is Canadian. And the one thing I know about hockey is every Canadian team, no matter what age group, what league, whatever, they get off the plane, they expect to win. They know they've done the work. They know they've earned it. They're worthy. They don't get off the plane just wanting to compete. You know, they, they expect to win. So as far as I'm concerned, that's the Canadian sporting attitude. And by the time I leave here, the thing that I want to leave is when Canadian athletes get off the plane, they are there to win because they know they've done the work and they deserve it. And uh, yeah, so now, you know, they don't laugh. There was a, there was a young man in the, uh, in the uh, audience who was sitting there. And when I asked about, you know, have you got off the plane? When's the last time you got off the plane expecting to win? He's kind of looking at me. And I just noticed him. He's staring at me like, where are you getting at? <laughs> and when I got to the part about hockey and every team, Canadian hockey team gets off the plane expecting to win, he's shaking his head. He's like, yep, you're right. You're right. And that young man is in our program today. He's on, he's on the national team. And he would have been, I think, 17 at the time. Um, he's on, He's one of our one of our brightest uh, athletes now. And he came from a hockey background, so he knew exactly what I was talking about. And um, yeah, our women are number one in the world and defending world champions right now. So when our athletes get off the plane, they know they've done the work. Makes me wonder how many men that are listening to this show are putting in the work, they're prepared to go into that business meeting, they're prepared to do that pitch, they're prepared for that sporting event. They're prepared for their moment. But the context that they're holding, the belief system that they have is not in alignment with what their goal ultimately is. That's exactly what it is. It's exactly. We talk ourselves out of so much. And I could have, I could have done this myself growing up. Um, you know, Louisville, Kentucky, where I grew up, it's a beautiful place. Great people. You know, when I was growing up, it was a factory town. You could, you know, retire from a job, you could pay your house off, send your kids to school, give them a better life. And when the factories moved away and, um, you know, you had people with university degrees competing for the same jobs as people with high school degrees and no, no education, you know, no degree. And, um, and then, you know, the gangs and all the stuff that people had to do. And, and now it's a, it's a really difficult place for a lot of people to, uh, you know, to even aspire to anything more than what they already know. Um, and I think there's lots of places in America and maybe around the world where especially young people, um, you know, they've, they've felt hopeless. And if you look at the depression and everything else that's going on with young people, you know, we've lost our sense of community and support and modeling for young people. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough to think that, yeah, I can have an idea of how I want my life to be, and then I can resource it and resource myself and then create that life. And, um, yeah, so that's one of the things that was done for me through, you know, great role models and, you know, my mother and her values and beliefs and my father and my stepfather and just people around me and gave me the opportunity to uh, see it see possibility and to not treat it as a fantasy but as a destination where I could like model success from someone who's already done it and 
create my own mindset, educate myself, resource myself, get a team around me. Like it's not a fantasy, it's not positive thinking. It's, it's really strategic thinking and strategic doing and creating that success, building that success, you know? It's a champion people get champion results, but success is built, not born. Champions are built, not born, <laughs> you know? You build it. Yeah. I think the word that stands out the most in that, in that last conversation we had was around possibility mm. and creating a possibility for your future, making sure you're taking the necessary steps to step into that. What there isn't right now, from my perspective, we're in the middle for those that are listening to the show, who knows when um, it's March 31st, 2020. We're in Toronto, Canada, the province of Ontario just, locked down all mass events, no mass events until June 30th. So more than three months from now because of the COVID-19 virus pandemic that's happening globally. And so what there doesn't seem to be right now is any possibility. Yeah. And what I'm wondering is how does the champion still see possibility? How do they think about themselves? How do they think about their families? How do they think about their communities and ensure that they're putting themselves and their community in the best position to come out of this thing, not only uh, with possibility, but living into it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fortunate personally because this is my life story. <laughs> and um, so I'm not talking about something you know, that I read and studied. I've had to do that stuff afterwards to put some framework around what I was living and to upskill myself. But this is exactly, this, this is the time. So. You know, people were thinking, okay, this is changing times. Well, the world has already changed. This is the lag time between the tipping point where something happened, the COVID-19 crisis happened. This is an economic crisis happening. We just don't feel that in our homes yet, necessarily. Some people do, but there are places where people don't feel uh, that this is an economic crisis. Um, and, you know, we imagine that the old normal is going to come back. And it's not. This is the world has changed. So um, right now, understanding that there's a lag time between the tipping point and the living point is an opportunity. Just like, you know, we we're talking before, just like with the stock market, you know, when the stock market goes down, most people panic and sell. And the people who are going to make money 5, 10, 15 years from now they're buying <laughs> so because of the opportunity. So it's the same exact thing. And the lag time, the time before it hits your home, is the time to pivot, to shift direction, to do something that's going to be appropriate for the next three to five years instead of doing the thing that you mastered that's been serving you for the last three to five years. And this was always happening. It was always coming this way. Um, it's just that the COVID-19 has accelerated the timeline. So with technology and, and the changes in, in you know, the way that we do things, that's always been coming. So, so I would say the first thing is holding the context of seeing the opportunity and understanding there's a lag time. If it's hitting your home right now, if you've lost your job and all that sort of stuff, then you understand the world has changed. So again, you're in a position, if you've already been affected by it, this is the time to pivot. When we don't do change is when we're comfortable 
or when security need is high and we have to just stay with what we're doing. That's not now. Yeah. Any, yeah. Anyone who stays with what they're doing um, and they're in a career that has shifted and won't come back, like sport, I'm in sport. Who's going to be sitting in an audience, you know, of 60,000 or 30,000 or 10,000 people in the near future? Yeah. So, not for the next three to six months. Not for the next three to six months. You know, the Olympics is planned for next year. Who's going to, you know, they've had their plans for the, who's going to get on a plane and go to Japan, to Asia for next. We don't know. I don't know if there might be a vaccine. Who knows? This thing could be managed. If there's a vaccine, it's probably a year away before it's safe enough for everybody. So, you know, even in my situation, I am planning my pivot. How am I going to, even, even with our athletes, we've already pivoted and, and, our athletes are in quarantine right now. Uh, not just self-isolation. Some of them are actually in quarantine because they were in Australia. You know, they were, they were in the Asian region. So they've come home and they've got 14 days of quarantine. Um, so there's no training for them. Our offices are closed until May, could be June. So we've got no access to our training facilities. So how are we as athletes going to grow and train, prepare for the Olympics or just prepare for competition? Our competition suspended uh, until June and it's unlikely that it'll come back this year. So what's our new normal? No one can predict it, but we can prepare. So I'm, I'm saying these things and I'm using these words deliberately. This is a mindset, this is a context. The lag time is an opportunity. This time is the time to prepare for what's about to happen. Even if you're being affected by it right now, the new normal looks different than it looks now. So you can pivot and you can prepare for what the new normal looks like in six months to a year and how you're gonna be secure, you and your family for the next three to five years. You can't just do a short-term pivot and then in six months time, you're at risk again. Yeah. So that's, that's getting, the, getting your mind right, seeing it as an opportunity. That puts you into warrior mode. And you need to be in warrior mode right now. If you're not in warrior mode right now <laughs> during this crisis, and this is what sports people know, you know, courage happens when the fear is there. You don't need courage when you have bravery. Very true. Yeah, bravery, you just do it. You don't feel the fear. But when you're afraid and you do it anyway, that requires courage. And that's the warrior. That's the warrior. So now it's time to, to gather yourself. First, you have to grieve. Everybody, you know, you, you grieve, whatever you need to grieve. But sooner or later, we got to get into warrior mode. And that warrior mode is looking at the opportunity in this, doing the pivot, and making sure that if you're, if you're starving now, you're not starving in six months. Thank you. Thank you for that fundamental shift in mindset because it's very easy with everything that's happening with so much fear and uncertainty for the default to be scarcity, um, overwhelm, hopelessness. And what you're saying is, yes, grieve. Know that it may be challenging. It's going to be tough. There's going to be obstacles that we're going to need to overcome. But acting now 
despite the fear, having the courage. And in the same way that, um, you know, Alan Watts, he's one of my favorite philosophers. He talks about how black implies white and how up implies down. Mm. Difficulty implies opportunity. That's right. And so there's really an opportunity for you to shift your context and to start getting into action about what you're going to do to set yourself up to win. And like you said, be a warrior for yourself, for your family, for your community. Yeah. And I use the word champion in, with, with myself in my own life and being a life champion because to me, a champion is someone who overcomes obstacles to achieve a result. Hmm. It's not about winning a prize or whatever. And so being a champion in life is literally overcoming the challenges in your life to achieve the results or the life that you want to have. And you know, I wrote a book called The Challenge Makes the Champion. I'm, I'm process of revising it. I've been in the process of revising it for over a year now, <laughs> but it's something I want to revise and re-release. But that's, that's actually what, I, what I've lived and what I believe. It's the challenge. And that's, that's what we see at the Olympics. I know with the Olympic journey, I know the nature of it. I don't know the details. I've been to five Olympics and what they've taught me is that every single one of them is different. Every single one of them. But the nature is the same. I know someone's going to be a favorite. They're going to choke. I know someone's going to come out of nowhere and, and be a giant killer. I know that someone's got expectations and they're going to meet them. You know, I know all these characters. I just don't know who we're going to be yet. <laughs> you know, so we're positioning ourselves so we can be the character who comes away with, with the goals that we set instead of setting goals, having these aspirations, getting there, and then not allowing ourselves to, to perform and we get in our own way. Either we don't prepare well or prepare for the wrong thing or we get there prepared and then we, we don't try, we freeze, we run away because we make it seem bigger than what it is. It's big, life's big. So stop pretending like it's small, acknowledge the fact that it's big, so prepare for a big life you know? <laughs> and let's do it. Have some fun with it and get out there and play. You know? So. That's what, I, that's what I would say now is just shifting, you know, context, shifting the mindset so that this challenge that's coming up, you see it as the opportunity to be the champion in the life that you were born to be. And that requires you being afraid and having courage. It requires you not knowing and discovering. There's all sorts of things that happen when the, the challenge defines the champion. Beautifully said. And we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, I called you Anderson at the beginning of the show because <laughs> yeah. in our men's teams, we use our last names to honor our fathers. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, the men's teams around masculinity. You keep saying the word context. So, you know, yeah, where does that okay. come from? Things of that nature. The okay. reason why is because the purpose of these special edition episodes of Gripped okay. is to... Um, is to highlight members of the Circle Up community. It's the Men's Mental Health Project that we're running to change the way that we look, talk, and feel about men's mental health, about masculinity, and to give men the tools that they need to be successful, self-sufficient men. Um, you know, there may be women listening to this podcast as well, and for for them, it, you know, it's a real opportunity for them to uh, see what a successful, self-sufficient man should look like. And to, to help stand and be a stand for the men in their life to be able to accomplish that. And so where I want to start with the kind of the, the men's work, if you could share with me, uh, just when you say the word context, 
okay. so that we're all standing from the same place. What does context mean to you in the context of what we're talking about right now? Okay. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you to you and how much I appreciate and admire you and what you're doing. So, um, yeah, we belong to a community where we have a men's team. So we have a team of men who meet on a weekly basis. Um, it's not a support group like where you get together and we talk stories or go out and party and all that kind of stuff. It's, it literally is a community where we get together and we're able to be unlike where I know to be anywhere else. So I'm, I'm able to be vulnerable. I'm able to be authentic. I know that I'm not being judged. Um, we have this agreement uh, through shared experience that we're there for the success of the other men who are there as well, not just our own success. So there's this sacred space that gets created and you're creating this for young men, what you're doing with Circle Up. And when I came to the first uh, Circle Up meeting at the fire you had, man, you don't know how much I was moved. You really, I, I tried to express it to you. Um, I've got an 11 year old son and what you're creating, the world you're helping to create for him is, I thank you, thank you. Appreciate that, man. Yeah, so um, context. So with context, context is um, the way it was described to me by, by a man who uses it a lot, <laughs> like in his daily life. He's made himself a millionaire in uh, working in, in finance and literally uses this with every phone call he makes and every important thing in his life. So he uses this really well. Um, and the way he described context to me was context is like a suit or a coat that you put on, that you wear, that helps you hold an identity that generates your thoughts, your words. It's, it's everything that comes from you comes from this context. And I've heard context described a lot of different ways, but when I was trying to come up with words or something that represented a context, I really couldn't get it until he described it as something that I can put on, um, which was really interesting to me. And I use this with my athletes. So if I have an athlete who is uh, just naturally a kind person, um, you know, just doesn't really, you know, tap into that beast, you know, uh, so they might struggle with high pressure situations because you know, they really feel under pressure. They might be oversensitive or whatever it is to whereas someone who really, you know, taps into that, you know, the inner beast all the time, they might not be sensitive in their partnership or on the team. They might be, you know, disruptive in the team because they're only coming from their own, um, you know, perspective. To whereas, you know, this the flip for the other people who are always worried about the team and how they fit in. When it's time for them to just show up and be more self-focused and, and let that inner beast come out, they struggle with it. So when we use this idea of context and it's almost like them putting on a character and just in a couple of words, like um, mine right now is empowered masculinity is the context that I find that is powerful for me right now in life. It's what I'm living in life. It's the challenges that I have in life. So as a context, when I'm in a situation where I can choose to be uh, stable, you know, be the rock, 
be calm instead of you know letting my emotions take me over um, having courage when I might want to freeze or flight when you know the things that really are traits of masculinity empowered masculinity I'm not talking about macho you know macho is not masculinity you know having to dominate people or acting out of fear or insecurity is not mask it's the opposite of masculinity <laughs> we confuse macho with masculinity uh, I'm not criticizing macho, I'm just saying it's not masculinity. So when I'm now for me to be empowered in my masculinity, I have to choose love. I have to choose vulnerability. Um, I have to choose care for someone else instead of trying to protect myself, you know, and, and defend my insecurity. So that's that's my context. And I put it on because in the moment when it's happening, I may not be feeling that way. My fear might rise up. So I have to remind myself, and it literally is like, boom, empowered mm. masculinity. That's so key because I think we could both agree that if you don't intentionally, I heard the word so many times, if you don't choose, yes, if you don't choose intentionally and proactively what your context is going to be, you may not be happy with the way that your default context shows oh, up. Oh, man. How do we even build our default context? <laughs> I was like, describe how many, how describe to me how you learned how to roll. How'd you learn proprioception and balance? How'd you learn all that sort of stuff? A, you go through the process, then you end up with a walk that shows your personality and your character and your image of self and how the world works. And if it's inefficient, you're stuck with it because it wasn't deliberate, you know? And so, and that's what we deal with in, in athletics all the time is people show up with their identity, who they think they are in the world, and they show up with this concept of what they think the world is and how it works. And then we have to use statistics and mathematics and, you know, study and trial and error and all this sort of stuff to see what's real, what, what's efficient and effective versus what their perception is. So we're always defining reality and then we're creating a system that works in the reality, not in their perception. So same thing with, with context. I mean, how did your default context get built? <laughs> was it through some traumatic experience or was it in a moment of power? <laughs> you know? And now you're stuck. So not a time to be stuck with a default context that doesn't serve you. <laughs> no, definitely not. One of the the conversations that I want to have with you is around empowered masculinity, which you've described as the current context you're choosing. Yeah. And I, I do want to, to ask you for those people that are listening that are kind of curious about, you know, what does empowered masculinity look like? If you could walk us through some of the ways that that shows up for you, yeah. that'd be fantastic. And can you talk about the contrast between empowered masculinity and what culture is describing as toxic masculinity yeah man so you can't talk about masculinity without talking about femininity and we have confused um so many terms in our language especially english where the same word can mean so many different things and then if you change the tone or context and so our language is so confusing so when we talk about masculinity people get it mistaken with male. Both men and women have masculinity and femininity. And 
you know, we talked about being toxic, you know, toxic masculinity. Well, there is no such thing as toxic masculinity. Masculinity isn't macho. Masculinity isn't insecure. Masculinity isn't uh, dominating someone. Empowered masculinity. So I'm just calling it empowered masculinity to help make a distinction because disempowered masculinity looks like acting violent because I can't express myself. It looks like uh, being defensive when I'm challenged and trying to do something dominating or violent or whatever to get my power back or de being degrading, whatever it is. So this whole concept of toxic masculinity, I mean, I understand the term, but it confuses what masculinity is. It's almost like saying, you know, I mean, what's the opposite of love? Once you love someone, like giving love means that if you accept them for how they are and how they're not, what can they do to where you take your love back? Because if it's conditional, then that's not love. You know, so people say hate's the opposite of love. I don't think so. I think once you, once you give love, once you are, you know, love, there's no opposite. I think it's, you know, we're, this duality is what we, we deal with. Love is the only thing that I know that's absolute because once love is given or once you have love, that means however that thing shows up, you accept it. So there's nothing that can change it to whereas, you know, the same thing with, with, uh, with masculinity. When you show up and you're able to tr and really trust yourself, when I can trust myself that I'm going to be okay, no matter what my environment is doing, I'm gonna be okay, no matter what my partner's doing, no matter what you say about me, that I'm safe and secure, then I can show up as love. I can show up as security. I can show up as stability. I can show up as logic. I don't let my feelings and emotions make my decisions for me. I'm a man. I'm supposed to have feelings. I, I, I have to, look at me, I have to be passionate. I wouldn't get off the couch. <laughs> you know? I have to feel something about something. Otherwise, why would I do anything? Why would I put myself in front of danger for my family if I didn't feel something? I have to feel. I have to have emotion. But if my decisions are driven from my insecurity and my fear and my being impulsive and my lazy, how can, who, who, I'm not going to be a man. I'm not, I'm not being masculine. And so as a masculine man, I have to come to terms with when I'm being creative, that's my femininity. You know, there are things that have masculine energy and feminine energy. Work, that's masculine. And I'm talking about like, um, like business. Mm. That's a masculine energy. But money is a feminine energy. You must attract it. You can't bully it into your life. So if we can just, first of all, separate masculine and feminine from male and female, because we all have it. And I've heard the term toxic femininity. And I, you know, and I heard a, a feminist describe it as, uh, you know, that's just men trying to get back at women for the term toxic masculinity. <laughs> and she has a point in that the feminine, femininity is creative. It is movement. That's femininity. So when femininity changes its direction like the wind, that's femininity. It's not masculinity, linear, logic. That's mm. masculinity. So a woman 
who is being in her masculine energy is thinking logically, working, you know, in a, in a very structured way. That's not her being a man. That's a woman who's accessing her masculine self, her masculine energy. We both have the same. And some people won't like that, <laughs> what I'm saying, because they want to say a lot of people that won't like that. <laughs> well, if you, if you say that men and women don't have masculine and feminine energy, then you have an argument. If you say that men are all masculinity and women are all femininity, then okay, we have a conversation and you have an argument. But if men and women both have feminine and masculine, when do men access their feminine? Now we have, we have men's teams and I had an issue. I, first of all, I had an issue trusting men before I got on the men's team, <laughs> you know, before, you know, it's we, very, we very, very common. Very common. I was, I'm a man who's been in competition most of my adult life, even as a young person. So what I know to do with men is compete. Um, and so hugging another man, I was very guarded because there's not a lot of safety uh, in the world. And this is like creating safety for our young people is one of the things that I'm very passionate about. And there's a lot of abuse and misuse and um, you can't trust. And so, and adults don't play games with kids. Um, and there's a lot of mistrust amongst adults with letting other adults be around their children now. We used to have communities where young boys could be modeled what it was to be a man because they were in the community of men and they got to see other men who weren't their father and got to see their father interact with other men and interact with other boys. We're losing that if not lost it. So we just have all this, this, you know, this distrust between people. Um, and so that was me. I was like, I showed up. Now I'm hugging another man and I'm like this, like an A-frame, you know, like there was no intimacy. There was no vulnerability. There was no care in it. Um, so now when, when we greet, we greet with genuine hugs. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in, you know, the U.S. and North America. And I think we confuse uh, sexuality with intimacy. And, you know, so if a man's hugging you, then he, he must be, you know, must be something sexual about it. And so don't hug me, don't, you know. So all these sort of ideals that aren't really real, they're just our own insecurities and things we've made up to protect ourselves in this uh, world where we don't trust. It's my, phone, my son's phone going off in the back. Hey. <laughs> the, uh, so it took me a long time and then on my team used to joke about me and to me about hugs and you still hugging like that because <laughs> I have these, you know, weird ideas about there must be some sort of sexual meaning to this and all this stuff that happens instead of these are just two human beings coming together to greet each other with some care and love. And um, it, it's really interesting. So now I can give a genuine hug to another man without having some sort of weird thought about it myself now so we're in our men's group and we're talking and dealing with masculinity all the time but we greet each other with a with a a genuine hug now you t is that masculinity or is that our nurture side is that an expression of our care and nurture which is feminine so whether people like the conversation or not i think one of the reasons i think if we have empowered masculinity and empowered femininity 
because there's all, there's a lot of behavior that we justify. Oh, that's just because you're a, a woman, you can act that way, or you're a man who's feminized, so that's why you're acting this way. I think because we confuse femininity and masculinity with gender, we excuse a lot of things, and we hide behind a lot of things, and we accept a lot of things. And so, you know, empowered femininity, I think, is just as important as in the same conversation as empowered masculinity. And when, when you're in an empowered state of femininity and an empowered state of masculinity, you're not threatened by other people because you trust yourself. The, the power comes from you being empowered as a human who happens to be male or female or who happens to be expressing masculinity or expressing femininity, nurture, care, creativity, you know, versus some of the, the masculine traits. So that's, like I say, it's not, a, I don't think it's a popular conversation, but if we get it right, I think we have world peace. Because if you look at all the stuff that comes out of macho and all the stuff that comes out of insecurity, and if you look at all the stuff that comes out of, um, you know, resentment and revenge and all this sort of stuff, and then you look at our problems, <laughs> it's no wonder we, we're not in community anymore. We can't collaborate. We don't trust each other. And we don't trust ourselves. Yeah. Well said, man. And I, I think everyone can agree right now that everyone's missing what hugging feels like given uh, coronavirus and social distancing. Uh, you give a pretty good hug, man. <laughs> now I do. <laughs> now I do. But I've gotten over myself. And, and you know, and I, I know I spoke a lot, but this is such an important thing because you look at our schools, you look at our young people, you look at young adults, you look at suicide rate, you look at depression, you look at medication. We don't trust ourselves. We don't feel equipped to cope with normal life. And that's, that's you look at all the stuff that's, that's showing up now in society and all the issues that we're having and you know, kids showing up to school and with guns and all that kind of stuff. There is no, there is no safety. And the safety has, it comes from self-sufficiency and, no, and mm -hmm. being able to yourself that no matter what's going on in your environment, you're going to be able to find a way. I'm going to be able to find a way to be safe, healthy, and thrive. And if I don't believe that I'm safe, there's no way for me to feel, you know, to be healthy or do healthy things. I'm just in fight, flight mm -hmm. mode. And then I'm not even, I'm not even in my, my right mind. I'm not in my prefrontal cortex trying to, I'm in, I'm in fight and flight and free. Yeah. And now I'm trying to relate with you. Or I'm trying to walk out my front door and, and, you know, interact and go do what I need to do when I'm feeling like I need to be running away or freezing or fighting someone. You can see it in our schools, man. Kids are fighting all the time. Yeah, man. Uh, I think to, to punctuate this point, and we're actually going to, you know, shift gears into the last bit of this podcast, just to punctuate okay. that point, not this past weekend that just happened, but the weekend before, um, my roommate and I spent virtually the entire day in High Park because of social distancing. Virtually nobody was there. And we mm. sat on a bench together in the sun. We, were, we had our headphones on. He's, he's my best friend in the whole world. He bought me these headphones. Um, and the beautiful thing about these headphones is we can sync our music and listen to the exact same songs. Oh, wow. That's and so we technology. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know we, we synced up Porter Robinson, who is a, an amazing music producer. He produced an album in 2013 called worlds. That's just phenomenal. Actually Nguyen, okay. 
he's the one that introduced us both to, to Port Robinson. Okay. And we're listening to him on this bench and Ian pulls his headphone off and he says to me, it's too bad that there's this bias around masculine uh, intimacy. Mm-hmm. And we had a very brief conversation about that. And then mm-hmm. maybe five minutes later, um, he walked away to go to the bathroom and I was kind of sitting there by myself. And when we came back together, I'm yeah. not sure what it was. We were listening to Fellow Feeling from that album. Beautiful song. I highly recommend if you're listening to the podcast, check out Port Robinson Worlds. And it clicked for both of us at the exact same time. And we've cried together many times, but we just gave each other one of the best hugs yeah. that I've ever had from anybody in my entire life. And I felt so comfortable, so secure, mm. um, and so real. And it, it reminded me, and I had a phone call with my mom later that day. I said to her, I'm really, with everything happening right now with, with COVID-19 and coronavirus, one of the biggest regrets that I have is all of the opportunities that I had to give you, mm-hmm. Tara, who's my sister, and my dad, real hugs with no yeah. barriers and no, you know, kind of, you know, what is this? Just like full, beautiful embraces. That, yeah. Those are some of my biggest regrets when I had those opportunities because now we don't have that opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, man. And, you know, I was getting emotional a little bit earlier just thinking about my son and there's all sorts of stories behind that with my father. Uh, but the intimacy and, and intimacy amongst men, like, you know, if there's a question about, you know, am I gay? Do, do I have some sort of, uh, uh, you know, question about my sexuality or that person's sexuality or, you know, is this appropriate? We have all this stuff in society today that tells us what's going on is wrong. Um, and we can't express ourselves fully and be accepted. So we hide, we do all this sort of stuff. Then we act out all this stuff. It just, just gets crazy. But if we can just put it in perspective and separate the things that need to be separated. Intimacy and sexuality aren't the same thing. <laughs> they just are not the same thing. Intimacy amongst heterosexual men um, is intimacy amongst heterosexual men. Intimacy amongst men who are in a relationship, a, a, a gay relationship, that's intimacy that's a totally different intimacy than between two different men who are not in a, in a loving relationship. They're just different. If we, can, if we can separate the two, then we can distinguish between the two. It's the same, the intimacy I show hugging my mother or my sister or my brother is not the same intimacy that I share when I have a, a hug with my wife, which is not the same as when I have a hug with my, with my son. They're all different. They're all different. So if we can just make these distinctions and separate the things that need to be separated instead of constantly confusing them. And when I look at young men and I look at masculinity, you know, my son's 11, I look at 20, 30 year old men. And I remember the metrosexual movement. I I think back to the hippie movement, which I I just missed. I was born in 64, but I can identify with it. And um, there's all these movements where at some point, we demonized masculinity. And we tried to be more, either more feminine or we tried to be more like women or we tried to be gender neutral. Instead of just embracing that both men and women have masculinity and femininity, 
And depending on your role and the way you identify, the way you express it, that, and that's unique to you, you know? So yeah, we just demonize things and then we create all this weird behavior around trying to manage it <laughs> yeah. instead of just embracing, you know, being, being very clear. If, if you're trying to have a sexual moment with someone, then it should be clear that this is a sexual encounter. If you're trying to have a brotherly encounter with someone, then it should be clear this is a brotherly encounter. And as that clarity is there, then you should be free to express yourself within that context. For sure. And if it's a brotherly encounter, it's not sexual. <laughs> if it's a sexual encounter, it's sexual. Yeah. And just the clarity itself helps us. But if we if we're going to allow ourselves to be confused and not have these conversations, not get clear with each other and just act out on each other and hide away who we are and what we are and, you know, and let it come up in these weird ways, we're going to keep having the problems that we're having. And right now, you know, what comes after COVID-19? You know, we need community. I don't know what opportunities we're going to have to be face to face with each other and be in community. And we need to find ways to express intimacy and care and love and team and collaboration, you know, the way we do in our men's team with each other. We don't always agree and sometimes it gets heated, you know, but there's genuine care for the other person's success. We suspend our judgment, we call ourselves out when we have it. Like that's, a, that's an amazing environment. So. If we can just interact that way as human beings, and especially between the sexes, because it gets weird when it's male, female, and you're heterosexual, because the sexual energy comes into it. And then we start getting weird with each other. We get weird around other men when the subject of when our woman becomes present. All of a sudden, we go into competition mode. You know, I'm not a woman, so I don't know how it is for women, so I can't speak to that. But you know, and same thing, you know, I'm not homosexual. I don't know how it is, but I have homosexual friends, you know, and being able to show intimacy, brotherly intimacy with them, I don't want to feel weird about it. And they don't bring me sexual energy, you know, they bring me brotherly energy. Let's have a brotherly exchange, you know? So that's just, just being real with each other and getting rid of the confusion is a big step. You're so clearly passionate about empowered masculinity. I appreciate you bringing that to the show. I feel like you need and you deserve like a Joe Rogan style podcast where it's like, you know, as, as, you know, as long as it's going to go, um, we will <laughs> kind of, you yeah. deservedly so because you're so passionate, so articulate, you have the mindset of a champion. And so the listeners really should be soaking up the way that you look at the world and taking pieces of it and implementing into their lives. And the, the last piece that I want to touch on and I'm so happy we've talked about community. We've talked about your son who yeah. I'm, I just love that he's in the room just hanging out there because he, he needs to be exposed to conversations like this. Yeah. Talk to me about um, the final, really the piece of your journey and kind of this directional legacy that you're yeah. trying to have, which is flashpoint global. How did that yeah. become, how, what is that? And you know, how did that come to be? Man, you know, I believe in destiny. It's driven me. Um, and, and I believe that inside of destiny, it's living. So it's not just like, oh, that's the way it's going to be. You have no choice. I think that, yeah, there is a, there is a purpose. I'm here with a purpose. There's a, there's a, 
a role for me to fulfill within humanity and that's my destiny and I'm doing everything I can to live into it powerfully and with all my insecurity and, and you know shortcomings and everything else that's part of the journey um, and with I never I never I didn't know that I was in the wellness business <laughs> uh, I just found that out this this past year that oh I'm I've actually been in the wellness business because I'm you know people know me as a sports person but I've had these other businesses and stuff but what I'm really doing is it's about human potential and human development and the health of human beings and something happened that was just destiny for me I met um, you know through where I work these two women made an inquiry about a speaker and I had suspended my public speaking when I came to Canada and I'm just, I was just starting to get back into it. So this was an opportunity. They asked for an athlete. And I was head coach for the National um, Beach Volleyball Program here at the time. So I'm like, well, our athletes are competing, but I'd like to do this because <laughs> I'm passionate about this, especially young people. And I have a, a program called Two Real Skills um, that I do with, with young people. And um, they said, yeah, sure. We'd love to have you do it. And now I'm working with them. We're forming a partnership and their company is Flashpoint Training. And we created Flashpoint Global and Two Real Skills and Flashpoint Training are partnering on this to create this Flashpoint Global. And what they did with Flashpoint Training just blew me away. Um, it's Laura and um, Annette, or uh, Nancy, or Annette, I think I'm a friend. Nancy and Laura are the, uh, the two owners of Flashpoint Training. Um, and they, they both were in the HR business. They were managers with different companies for 20 years in the HR business, major companies, didn't know each other. And they met and they both had met so many young people who came to, you know, their company seeking employment who had no clue about what it was like to be in the real workforce. So they left their businesses, their, their companies, and form Flashpoint Training. And they work with 11th and 12th graders. And they bring, they partner with business people, people who are experts in their area. They bring them as facilitators to deliver these programs to give young people real, real world skills and experience to prepare them for being successful in whatever they choose to do. And um, because I have an 11 year old son, and I have um, other people in my life who are working with young uh, men, young boys. Um, and, I, and I was lacking a community for my son. A guy named Nick Hodges and I created this thing called The Journey, which was a safe space for fathers and sons to discover masculinity and help young men on the journey to manhood. And then we found out we had fathers with daughters and they were interested in it because these young men are the men their daughters are going to be dating and marrying. <laughs> so it brought my attention to, oh, yeah, it's not just about dads and sons. These young men are going to be the new fathers and boyfriends and husbands to these young women. So it's really about all of us. Our young men, the development of our young men is about all of us. And when you look at our world today, Look at the violence, look at the war, look at all the stuff that happens, the penitentiaries. And then you look at the, the, the plight of our young men and you look at the plight of men in general and who's leading all this stuff. So 
you know, and, and the suicide rate with, uh, with men and young men. So we need to, and I, I, um, I always forget who said this. I want to say it was uh, Frederick Douglass. I don't know if it was him or not. But um, it's, it's easier to raise uh, an empowered child than it is to fix a, um, a broken adult. And I think he said, I think he actually said it's easier to raise an, um, an, an healthy boy than it is to fix a broken man. But for me, it's child, you know, because our girls are suffering now as well. So with Flashpoint Global, um, we are creating a pathway like we'd, we'd like to have in the school system. So we're trying to integrate life skills coping skills, self-esteem, self-efficacy, physical literacy. Beautiful. Yeah, all the th things that support academic education that's lost. And people forget about this. They forget about the, you know, first education came through play, you know? And play is the first way for young people, whether it's wrestling or learning rules and boundaries or whatever it is, kids learn through play. So we'd like to do K through 12. We're not going to start there, but we'd like to start with K through, uh, we'd like to finish it. And having this as part of the normal school curriculum, starting with physical literacy and character development. And I have an amazing friend named uh, Andrew Bouchon, who has been doing a program for over 20 years, 16 years uh, within two different schools, five days a week, does it volunteer. He's done it 16 years, volunteer in two different schools. It's hardly missed a day in 16 years. Um, teaching kids physical literacy and character development before they start their school day. And so this is one of the models that we're using in our program is what he's created really is a safe place for kids. And I went to go watch his program and um, one of the kids, he's, he, he told me about him before. He goes, yeah, this kid is known as the bully in school. He's you know, he gives teachers a hard time, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, he's, he's part of our program. And I watched this kid. He's mentoring other kids. There's no way in the world. He's not the bully because he's in a safe space. And I'm watching this and I'm like, wow. And then I'm talking to the principal afterwards. And yeah, this kid with other teachers and everywhere else, he's, he's, he's in fight mode because he's not safe. And once he leaves this environment, he puts the armor back on because he comes from a rough neighborhood. You know, there's, there's, you know, people are getting killed and there's all sorts of violence and stuff. He can't go home and, you know, be this lovey-dovey kid. He's, on, he's in fight mode the whole time. And then he comes to school and he's being judged and criticized and, you know, with clothes he's wearing, all this kind of stuff. He's in fight mode. But he comes to this one space and he's only competing with himself. The way Andrew has it set up, it's heavy competition. He pushes the kids hard, but it's only who they were yesterday compared to who they are today. Got it. So they're free to help each other and root for each other in the whole event because who cares what you're doing? I'm not being compared to you. I'm only being compared to who I was yesterday. And, and what he creates for them, he, they, these kids know that he's there. He's, there's no judgment. He just wants them to win. And they feel safe. And that's the first thing. For me, it's safety, health, and thriving. We like to go straight to health and thriving. And if we don't have a sense of safety, you can't be healthy or thrive. And 
I've got another friend, it's Joseph, who does the same thing through sport. He's created an environment where kids come and, you know, they, the leadership, the ownership that they have in their own growth, it's, it's incredible stuff. And he's a, you know, another pillar of the community. Over 20 years, been, you know, when, when they have issues at school, they call this guy to come in and be liaison with the police and everything else because he's so trusted. And he's got generations, I've met adults, generations of people who are, have been influenced by him and still see him as a mentor. And it's just incredible stuff. So we're using these as models to first of all, create safety for not just the kids, but the students, uh, not the students, the, uh, the teachers and the staff. Because who's supporting teachers now? You know, we as parents, we used to back the teachers. When I went to school, you know, I was born in 64. So when I went to school, if I messed up in school, if my parents got called, my parents had the teachers back. What did my son do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got in trouble right in front of the teacher, and the teacher knew that they had my back. Then I went home and got in trouble. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it was. So uh, now your kid gets in trouble in school, we show up, we want to know what the teacher did wrong and what the teacher's failing to do to pull the best out of our kids. And then we complain to the principal and the principal is trying to appease us as parents. You know, they don't have the teachers back anymore. They can't have the teachers back because they're afraid of getting sued or having the you know, complaints to the board and stuff. So the teachers are showing up, they're passionate, but they, who's got their back? Mm-hmm. so they're disengaged and disappoint, you know, disillusioned and all this sort of stuff and they're dealing with kids you can't even, you can't even be firm with the kid anymore so a kid calls you a name gets up in the middle of your class walks out or whatever what are you going to do after you send them to the office a few times what are you going to do you can't even fail kids here you know, through the 6th grade so I'm a kid I can't fail <laughs> what leverage do you have with me <laughs> You have no leverage with me. Yeah. So it's, it's just a really interesting situation. So we want to create, you know, through this program, safety for everyone, then get it healthy, which requires skills and systems, and then get it into thriving. One final note as we close off. One final note. Yeah. And I think it bears repeating. And I'll preface the, the quote with, I am so inspired genuinely. And I'm so grateful that there are men like you who are going into our communities and living their higher purpose, trying to make a difference for young people because you are, um, you're setting such a fantastic example and our communities as a result, future generations as a result are going to be in a way better place than they are today as a result of men like you. And so I want to repeat that last quote and then use it as a challenge for the listener and for you and for me. And I really want to bring it back to that. It's about okay. me now. It's about you now. And it's about the listener. Yeah. It takes, it's easier to raise a healthy boy mm. than it is to fix a broken man. What yeah. can you and I do after we leave this podcast today and tomorrow and over the next couple of weeks to live into that future of, of creating um, and building up healthy, healthy men, healthy young boys. Well, I think, I think we can make a commitment to, first of all, building an environment where boys can be 
safe and healthy. And, you know, the conversation I'm in right now is about this empowered masculinity and the fact that men have masculinity and femininity. Women have masculinity and femininity. And we seem to be at war with each other instead of honoring and appreciating each other and appreciating inside of ourselves our own masculinity and femininity and, and, and using it in an empowered, healthy way and giving that example and creating that environment for our young men to understand that they have masculinity and femininity. You are supposed to feel, feel deeply. If you make your decisions from your feelings and you're upset, you're going to, you know, as a strong person, as a person with power, who's physically strong, um, you know, who has influence, you can't go around the world acting impulsively out of your emotion because you do extreme damage. Doesn't mean that you don't have the feelings, but learn to deal with these feelings in a healthy, productive way, express them in a healthy, productive way, instead of through violence and greed and insecurity and ego and all this stuff that we as men use as tools to mask the fact that we don't feel safe. And for women, you know, we've, we've, you know, I hear women say things like men are advantaged and all this sort of stuff. And men have shaped the world throughout most of the world where men have some sort of advantage. In some places, you know, women can still be stoned in, in the street for, I think that you are, are doing something improper. Or, you know, women can be abused in a, in a way, in a sexual way because of the way she dressed or whatever it is. Um, we as men will group together and attack women, you know? So yeah, we have built our own bed here where we've built a world where a lot of this behavior was accepted as just being a man. And, you know, and now we're in a world where it's not acceptable in public. But as men, we still celebrate some of this behavior and we keep passing it along. And so I think we need to manage ourselves in a way where we get really clear on the type of man that we want to be and the type of man we want our sons to be. And we start creating that. We start having some honor and some community and some standard about being a man. And that's where I think empowered masculinity comes into it. But there's so many of us that are broken in some way. And society helps to reinforce that through the messages that we get. You're supposed to act this way. You're supposed to be this way. This is the way to be a man. And it's destructive and it doesn't recognize and honor the femininity in a man without turning it into something that's cowardly or less than or weak and so you know nurture is not weak and boys and girls need nurture it may look different fathering looks different than mothering <laughs> you know Nurture for me and my son, we wrestle, we're joking around. I'm being a little bit rough with him. And he's laughing and playing and he's learning boundaries. And that's my, you know, me letting him in my space with my guard down, knowing that he may get a little rough 
and, and do something that gives me some physical pain or whatever, that's me being vulnerable with him and, and letting him sharpen his sword with me and be in my space instead of me treating him like a grown man and keeping him at arm's distance where he gets no nurture from me. Same with the hug. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to cherry pick this last question. And I really do think this deserves a round two. We're going to have to bring you back on the show. Uh, thank you so much for awesome. being so articulate and so passionate and believing in your message and living your message. The last question I have for you is because I'm so curious how you're going to answer and respond to this question because a wise man once told me that the responsibility of the father is to prepare his son for life. Yeah. And the best way to do that is to make life as difficult as possible. Yeah. Given a lot of the conversation today has been about nurture, how would yeah. you respond to, to that? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. What does difficult mean? So here's, here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. And I would call it nurture. Nurture uh, dadding. So nurturing the way a dad would nurture. I would call it nurturing in a masculine way. So here's, here's what I know. Being a man, I'm 55 years old. Being a 55-year-old man, this is what I've experienced in what I know for myself. I know that when I am in the company of men, we're usually in relationship when we're doing something. And men have responsibility to protect and provide. That's what we've convinced ourselves is, our, is part of our duty as men. And we, we, it helps us to do that in a masculine, loving way instead of through resentment or whatever else shows up. You know, that men do things, but they, they do it because they hate it. And, um, you know, they're not really, they're not really committed, <laughs> you know? So, um, what I know for myself is, there's my son's phone again. <laughs> what, I, what I know for myself is, my nurture as a father is this young man, I'm 55, he's 11. My dad died when I was nine. My nurture for him is for him to be self-sufficient. And so if he doesn't have a skill that he needs, he needs to have a high standard. I can try to bully him into that standard, thinking that, you know, barring any sort of like medical miracle where I can live to 150, I don't know if I choose that anyway. <laughs> But looking at the numbers, him 11, me 55, 40 years time, I'm 90, 95, he's, you know, he's um, 51, 30 years time, 20 years time, however long I get on this earth, if it's, you know, tomorrow, it's a blessing. I have to prepare him. I don't have a lot of time. And he has to learn these lessons and he has to experience it and own it. And being a young man, He's not gonna take everything in the softest, nicest way. It doesn't prepare him for the world that's awaiting him. So he needs resilience. He needs 
commitment. He needs self-management. These are tools as a man in the world are gonna serve him really well. And as a boy, why would he want these things? So helping him on his journey from boyhood to manhood, he needs a challenge. So when I, when I hear the word difficult or make it as difficult for him as possible, what I hear is be a jerk and treat him harshly and out of the fire will rise a man. And that sounds familiar to me because I think that's the way men were raised. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And I think that some of the intelligence behind that is very valid. But look at the men that we created doing that. And look at how we treat ourselves as men. You know, Dr. Warren Farrell came and did a, did a talk and this made such an impression on me. And I realized he gets a lot of flack um, having traveled the path he did being with National Organization of Women and then leaving that organization and now having you know, people who criticize him and everything. And you know, I don't study him enough to know exactly everything about him, but this part of what he said was, was just changed my life. You know, we as men, we are treated as uh, being expendable and we think of ourselves as being expendable. It rocked me when he said it because it rang true so much. And whether it's in the past where men were expected to go off to war and die for their families and their country, expendable, or get up early in the morning like my dad did before we woke up, leave the home, work all day, and then come home at night after we were in bed five days a week and be absent from the home and miss growing up with his kids because he's expendable. And as men, that's what we expect of each other. Our women expect it of us. Society expects it. They expect us to sacrifice ourselves, give ourselves to make a way for women, children, and the old. And we buy, we, we buy that story and we live it and we hold each other to it. And if you're not being a man, if you're not focused on making money, if you're home with your kid, throwing the ball when you should be out making that dollar and pushing yourself up the corporate ladder, you're not being a man. And you'll see men who sacrifice their family so they can make that dollar and provide for their family. And their kids will say, I just wish you were here. And they'll say, you don't understand, I did it for you. Or you'll see people who work themselves into the grave, literally, to provide for their family because I'm expendable. I don't want my son, my son's not expendable. His life matters. I want him to know that. And I want him to live in a way where he honors traditional values like protecting and providing. He understands that is the role that he takes on when he's the provider. If his wife is the provider, he needs to nurture. It's not a gender thing. But if he accepts the role as a provider, then he needs to provide. If he accepts the role of protector, he needs to protect. That's his role but it doesn't mean that he's expendable. 
So we just have to be smarter about these messages and how we raise our boys and just teach them to provide, protect, do all the things that traditional men did, but do it in a way where he gets to be there with his children. He gets to be there with his wife. He gets to hug genuinely <laughs> and express himself. He gets to express his creative side without being, you know, told that he's weak or whatever names that people want to call him. He gets to be a whole human being and fulfill his role. And that I think masculinity allows him to do that. Empowered masculinity and understanding his, his femininity and using it in an empowered way, I think allows him to be a whole human being. And so that's what I would say for society is we, we have to, you know, look at ourselves as humans, but this whole thing about, you know, gender doesn't matter. And, you know, we're, we're all the race doesn't matter. And you're kind of all this kind of stuff. I think it goes against the, the nature of human beings who want to be unique and special and honor, you know, themselves, your DNA wants to want you to honor it, <laughs> you know, not say that it doesn't matter. But that doesn't mean that the person I'm standing next to isn't just as remarkable. And if we can celebrate each other that way, then we're all champions in our own lives. Okay, now we're doing something. We can, we can elevate each other. And right now, you know, we just compete with each other. One winner, everybody else is a loser. I'm going to be the winner, you lose. Well, I'm not going to help you win, and I'm the loser. We got a war. Yeah. It's an antiquated idea about winning. That's what I learned at the Olympics. One winner doesn't work. I think uh, for round two, we'll touch on the new winning versus the old winning. But uh, for now, yeah. I got to say that uh, this podcast had so many gems and I'm going to be able to pull those out. And this was a podcast for fathers. This was a podcast for sons. It was a podcast for brothers. And I couldn't be more grateful and more happy that uh, you participated in, and you invested in our listeners and poured into them based off of your life experience. So thanks for being thank on you, the man. show, Anderson. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, Andrews, thank you. Thanks for doing this. I'm, I'm looking forward to being back, but uh, I'm also looking forward to listening to this. And thank you for capturing this because like I said, I have a son and this is part of my legacy. And I appreciate you making this available for me. So thank you. You got it, man. He'll uh, be very proud of you.